0: Good morning, church. Good to see all of you today. I'm excited to be here. And he got to announce it. Can you believe that? So, I guess I'm just going to officially congratulate you and Mrs. Shefzik on your fourth child. That's awesome. Um, being a parent's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is. A lot of us are parents. We get to experience that and. If you haven't been a parent yet, you probably will be. Um, That's part of our life. Parenting for me has been absolutely one of the best things um, in my life. It's also been one of the most challenging. What you're trying to do is develop these kids into reasonable human beings, right? That uh, make good decisions and and love the Lord. Um, But it's hard, it's not simple. Um, It's because you're up against human nature that is obstinate, isn't it? Um, but as parents, we don't give up when we run into uh, some difficulty with that. We, we keep on going. And um, at some point, we uh, have got to figure out some sort of intervention for misbehavior that uh, is more effective than timeout. And, and as they get a little bit older, these kids might actually just reject any kind of discipline that we try to meet out as parents. So what would a good and and loving parent do at that point? We're all going to run up against that if we haven't already. Well, one of my friends likes to say, Ed, people learn one of two ways, pain or teachability. And what he means by that is that some people are going to reject good principles or good advice, and they're just going to have to learn things from experience, from their own way. Some of us can probably identify with that. And so understanding that when that good parent's in a situation with this child that's difficult to discipline, he might actually say, okay, go ahead, do it your way, and we'll see how that works out for you, understanding that uh, he's going to learn from his own mistakes. That's a little bit like what we see in Judges, where there's the loving God interacting with the people he loves, and that God is faithful to them, but sometimes those people don't pay attention and they've got to sort things out for themselves. And I think it is like us, and I think that's why Judges is useful. So this morning we'll be back in Judges chapter 2. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. Um, before we jump right into it, I'm just going to remind us a little bit about where we're going. And, and so in general, what I'm going to do is take Judges chapter 2, and I'm going to separate it into two lessons, and then moving forward, What I'd like to do is, is take a look at some of the individual narratives of the judges themselves and see what we can learn about God's character and what we can learn about mankind and what we can learn about what we need to change individually. So the book of Judges, if you recall, is a record of a period of history in the nation of the Hebrews right after they move into the land of Canaan. And the book of Joshua that precedes it talks about that initial conquest of the land. And so Judges picks up where Joshua and Joshua's leadership lead off. The people still have work to do. God had commanded them in Deuteronomy to clear out the Canaanite people groups because of their pagan idolatry. And that was a consequence for the, paganite, or for the, for the Canaanites. But it was also to protect God's people so they weren't influenced by those pagan ways. And the people had also been given the Mosaic Covenant. And recall that it was a lot of rules and regulations for how the Hebrews were supposed to operate it included the Ten Commandments but it also contained promises from God and those promises included numerous blessings so that if the Hebrews were faithful and obeyed God then there were blessings that would include land acquisition agricultural success and it also included God's presence in battle and reassurance of military victory despite great odds however If they broke that covenant and they disobeyed God, then they also had clearly defined consequences. That included defeat at the hands of their enemies. So in the very first part of Judges, chapter 1, we saw that the people initially do well, they were obedient to God, they had military success, but then the resolve softened, they began to lose faith in God, they began to disobey Him, and then that led to some defeats. And so that segment, it described the military and political situation in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is going to take a look more at the moral and spiritual situation of the people. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verses 1. This is what it says. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Okay, so first thing I want us to notice here is that this is a really big deal. The angel of the Lord came and visited the people. and This is what some people call a theophany. Theophany is a visible experience of when God himself visits the people. And the angel of the Lord, if you read Joshua chapter 5, is also the captain of the host of the Lord. That is, he's the military commander of the Lord's spiritual and angelic forces. Yet he speaks with the authority of God as if he is God himself. So he's not just some army officer. In other words, this is a personal member of the Trinity. Some people think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua. As you follow through Judges, um, he's going to appear to Gideon, and he also appears to the parents of Samson. So this is just part of that narrative. And if you read Exodus chapter 20, God explains he would send an angel to guard their progress of conquering the land a little at a time. I think this is that angel. He would have been present, observing, and assisting the Hebrews' military progress, and when they started to fail, he came to tell them why. So the fact that God Himself came to deliver this message makes it significant. This is a serious deal. Second, think about this. This is probably terrifying if you're actually there and you witness this. Angel of the Lord saying, Hey, remember me? I'm the reason you aren't still back in slavery in Egypt. I'm the reason you're here getting the blessings that I promised. We had an agreement and you broke it. Not me. I was faithful, you weren't, and this is what you did. Instead of keeping my agreement that you agreed to, you made an agreement with the enemy. I told you to get rid of them and their pagan ways, and you didn't do it. Instead, you capitulated, you accepted them, you intermarried with them. He says, what is this you have done? Basically, he's saying, you clearly disobeyed me. And so according to the agreement that you signed, any failure or consequences you experience here, not my fault. They're yours. I think that's brutal. It's painful to listen to. He's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, right? And the blessings and the curses that are contained within that. And so this is an indictment and a warning from the Lord of some consequences that are coming their way the Lord would no longer guarantee success in the battlefield and the indigenous people are going to start to conquer him. The people knew that covenant well, too. Um, So they knew better. This is interesting. This terminology is interesting. These are the same words that God spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden after the original sin. He said, what is this you have done? It's the same thing. She should have known better. And when it says, they will have thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you, that's also a direct quote from a message that God had given to the people through Joshua. So none of this would have been new or surprising to them. They would have known they were in the wrong. And the location of this is significant too. Uh, so I got a map up here and I pin dropped Gilgal, which is where the angel of the Lord came from. Gilgal is located east of Jericho. Jericho um, was the initial engagement of the people when they came into the land. And Joshua was visited by the angel before that engagement and it probably would have happened at Gilgal. So there's a precedent for the angel appearing here. And Gilgal at this point was also the location of Joshua's regional command center, if you will. And it was also where the tabernacle was located. And so this was a place of high military and spiritual value and an important messenger would have come from Gilgal. And then the place where they received the message, they named Bokim, which is probably uh, near Bethel to the west. Difficult to see on that map. It's probably where it's at. And they're weeping and they're crying for a couple of reasons. One, I think, They just felt bad about what they had done. They realized the significance of their sin, and they realized they had disappointed God, so they felt bad about it. Secondly, I think some of them realized that the consequences they were about to experience were going to be pretty bad. And there's some self-pity here, and that's why they're weeping. And, And I say that because if you follow judges all the way through, it's apparent that this sorrow didn't lead to repentance. They didn't completely change their ways. And so now we can learn from their mistakes. We ought to learn from their mistakes because we don't want to be in the camp with the weepers, right? I think one of the primary things we can take away from all of that is that God is present and he's speaking to his people and he's still speaking and he's saying, hey, wake up. I want to be with you. I want you back. And I'm willing to let some adversity happen to you in order for you to realize how good we had it when we're together. In other words, I think the principle here is this. God wants our fidelity. He wants our loyalty. And he wants our continued obedience. So, Just like the Hebrews, I think we should be where God's present. He's active. He's for us. But he also gives us just enough leash to self-destruct and realize we actually do need him. And he wants us to repent. He wants us to literally change our ways. He wants us to obey him. And so what we're going to do is pick it up in verse 6. It says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel each went to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. So, the chronology here is actually difficult, because it jumps right to Joshua, who, if you'll recall, we already know died from chapter 1, verse 1. So, what we have here, then, is it's like a parallel account. Okay? It's a different angle of the Hebrew situation. So the first chapter, like I said, is focused on military-political outcomes. second chapter is focused on spiritual-moral outcomes. They're both going to start with the death of Joshua. And it's interesting. So this, this discussion about the angel of the Lord, then it's kind of a literary link between these two narratives. And there's, there's actually not scholarly consensus on whether chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, are the end of chapter 1 or the beginning of chapter 2. It links them together. And don't let it confuse you. Really, is my point, it's all part of the same line of thought. It's all part of the same narrative. So Joshua's leadership is over here, uh, but unlike his predecessor, he didn't name a successor for the people. Thus, enters the time of the judges. So this is a time period when the people were supposed to be ruled by God and not by men. And and by the way, I think Timnath-Herez, this place where Joshua was buried, I think it was really beautiful and idyllic. It was like a city on a hill, so to speak. And I say that because Joshua had requested it from the people and they had given it to him as part of his land inheritance and they buried him there. And So Joshua, he lived well, he served well, and then he died well. So it's a job well done. And, and I think he's a biblical character we can learn a lot of positives from. But the, the key segment of this passage is... 10 through 15. And so let's follow it. It says All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them. So that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as had the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. I think that's pretty terrible. Um, that's what happened. That's, it's tough to listen to. It's tough to read. One generation passed beyond Joshua's faithful leadership and things go downhill in a hurry. Total landslide. They did not remember what the Lord had done for them. They forgot about him. They forgot about his principles of operation. They didn't stay disciplined. They forgot the source of their blessings and success. Instead, they did what they wanted. They returned to pagan idol worship. This Baal was the Canaanite name for the Syrian god of Hadad, who was supposedly a god of storms and wars. And the Ashtaroth is plural for the female consort of the Baal. She was a fertility goddess. One commentator I read about this said, Baal worship involved the most debasing immorality imaginable. So obviously whatever they're doing is morally repugnant. It's pretty bad. And because of this, God got angry. It says they provoked him to anger. The people completely rejected God despite all the good things he had done for them. It provoked him. And the result was that they were defeated by their enemies, (laughs) plundered, and literally sold or enslaved into the hands of their enemies. And God allowed all that to happen to his people. So, how should we think about this? God just gets angry and allows bad things to happen to people? Well, how can a good God do that? That's the question people ask when they read this kind of thing. The answer is that God's goodness is bounded by his justice and his holiness. God's goodness is bounded by his justice and his holiness. So what we can learn from this then is that our God is a good God. He's just This anger that he has is righteous anger over actions. Think about it. They have crossed the line so severely that his perfect justice can't just let it slide. His people turn their back on him despite his blessings, his providence, their prior deliverance from slavery. So this is a just anger. This isn't vengeful. It's not selfish. God loves his people, but he is allowed to express an attitude of disappointment and judgment for when they misbehave. Just think about a loving father who would do uh, a similar thing to a child that needs discipline. Right? This is similar to Romans chapter 1. This is how he does it. God didn't actively send evil their way either. He simply just lifted his hands of providential protection from the situation. He backed off. They started to lose battles because God wasn't with them anymore. Essentially, he let them have their own way and then they got to suffer the consequences for their own actions. Just like a good dad might say to an older son, okay, go ahead. Do it your way. And we'll see how that works out for you. And remember, why did all this happen? It's because they forgot about God. So the principle is, we need to remember to be faithful to God. Mark it down. Faithfulness. Just like the Hebrews, if we reject God, if we forget about him, if we do things our way, we can expect to find ourselves in difficulty and have some personal pain, I think. We'll be reaping what we sow, so to speak. We may very well then find ourselves enslaved to our own sin patterns, back in our own personal Egypt, conquered by the things that we should have conquered, and having lost the blessings we took for granted. This is directly applicable now, the reason these difficult things happen, though, is that they did forget about God, right? How did that happen? Why did they do that? We can probably infer that the next generation after Joshua didn't know the Lord because they were human. They were arrogant, right? They're prideful, they're obstinate. They didn't need to listen to their elders, they didn't need wisdom, they didn't listen to tradition they didn't read history and it only took one generation to produce people that were thankless entitled complacent they thought that somehow their experiences were more valid than the experiences of generations before them they rejoiced in their freedom so much that it turned to bondage right underneath their nose so a failure of one generation literally leads to tyranny here and like I said before we in America We're not God's covenant people, okay? But some of these principles in Scripture are for all people for all time. And so that means we ought to be able to draw a parallel to our current situation. However, I do think our country is uniquely similar to the Hebrews. and The similarity that, by the way, makes this a good case study is the fact that this country was founded on a heritage of biblical principles. Some of the blessings we've experienced are a direct result of that in the United States of America in other words because we have a history of obeying god as a nation we have been blessed we talked a little bit about that last week on constitution day some of the unprecedented freedoms we have are because of our constitution that's a blessing for us john adams this is what he said about it. our constitution was made only for moral and religious people it is wholly inadequate for the government of any other What he meant by religious people was God-fearing people. He's talking about Christianity when he said that. Christianity is what gave the people their morality and the fortitude to do the right thing. So our faith and our national heritage, they are linked. and The continued good government of our nation under that constitution, according to Adams, and I think he was right, is based on whether or not we as a country are going to continue to remember and honor God. And additionally, think about this. Our experiment in freedom is similar to the theocracy of the judges. Similar. We have a lot of free will. The Hebrews had a lot of free will. The Hebrews abused it and they experienced some pain. Everybody here probably remembers this statement, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Well, the Hebrews forgot their own history. We can see that how we steward our free will then has consequences, good or bad. If we don't hold on to a godly morality, we're going to run into problems. We're going to experience some form of chaos or tyranny. We can lose the freedom we have. Some of the problems I think are subtle too. Uh, Modern idolatry, little g-gods, what's that? Uh, Could be relationships, some pastimes, science. Science environment can all be worshipped above our God how about money how about just the idea of human progress all those things can be elevated in a status or in a position higher than our God but I think it's up to us and individually to take a look at this and as a nation generally to remember to be faithful to God he's responsible for the blessings and freedoms in our physical lives he's also responsible for the blessings of eternal life that we have by faith in Christ.
1: And to forget it
0: or disregard that is folly. Now what's, another reason, what's another reason you think that this generation after Joshua who didn't know the Lord, why didn't they know the Lord? Probably safe to say that it's because they hadn't been properly instructed. Who would have been responsible for instructing these people? Their parents. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. These people knew it. It said, you shall love the Lord with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So it was the parents who were responsible for passing on their faith and for teaching their children history. It wasn't the religious officials, and it wasn't the government. It was the parents' duty. Not understanding history, not understanding the truths about God or the truths that Scripture has for us is dangerous. So it's important then that each new generation learns about these things so they can understand the circumstances that resulted in their own current situation. And there's an obligation for parents to pass it down. The principle in the text is this. Our faith has to be taught to the next generation. What I'm suggesting then is that parents diligently pass a reasoned faith and the biblical principles that are in it down to their kids. Put this in application, what it means is that we need to make sure our kids are leaving our houses equipped with a worldview that's based on God's Word and not what the culture says. Think about it. Worldview is the lens through which we view all of our circumstances and make our opinions, it's a grid for our decision making. So everyone has one, whether they know it or not, whether they've thought about this or not. And it's important because it gives us our answers to life's biggest questions like, where did I come from? What's my purpose here? Where do I go when I die? It also informs all the smaller questions after those things. Because we live in the culture, and the culture is largely secular, if our worldview is not based on God's word, then it will be opposed to it, or it'll be mixed up at best. So this biblical worldview, then, it, it's not just a memory verse. It's not something you just give a kid on a Sunday morning. It's just something that takes about 17 years to develop. it's a product of the sum of their influences. So when our kids leave our homes, they're either going to have a worldview that is godly, so that they will be able to identify truth and lies and make good decisions and hold God-honoring opinions. And if they don't, they're going to hold a culturally influenced version of those things. So in other words, I think it's an imperative for parents to be intentional on how we pass on our faith. Our kids aren't going to develop this kind of thinking unless we continually talk to them about these things, and we model it for them. It can't be left up to pastors. It's not up to Sunday school teachers. It's up to parents, Grandparents. We got to read and teach scripture to our kids. We got to pray with them um, and teach them history, too. Get them to understand their blessings and where they come from. I think it's our responsibility to see to it that the next generation after us doesn't forget about God, like the generation after Joshua did. Hey, if some of that seems a little heavy, it's because it is. But don't worry. It's just half the chapter. What we'll see next time is that God does understand that people need Him, how people are insufficient on their own without Him. And we'll see God's mercy and compassion. And we'll also see how God sends a deliverer, a Savior to His people that are in this mess. And ultimately, if we follow that redemptive thread through Scripture, we see that that ultimate Savior is Christ. Right? So now we are in a far better position than the Hebrews were during the time of the Judges. We have Christ. He's the one who's a solution to all the sin and weakness. His life, death, and resurrection combined with our faith equal our salvation from this mess of the physical world. Freedom from the power of sin. Then we can look forward to an eternal life and a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be perfect. That's great. But sometimes, like the first half of Judges 2, we've got to get the difficult news before we can truly appreciate the good news. Okay? We've got to understand the crooked line in order to appreciate what a straight line looks like. This faith in history need passed on to the next generation, and it needs to lead with the good news of Christ and his faithfulness to us. And if that doesn't happen, I think trouble's around the corner, and I think history evidences that as well. I want you to think about this. You might recall the uh, brutal reality of the old Soviet Union and the communist regime. And then the the bloody Bolshevik revolution that started that. So many of its own people died. And they were subjugated for the sake of this communist ideal. And that was an ideal that supposedly transcended human individuals for the greater good. And it actually masqueraded for evil. And then remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Solzhenitsyn was a Christian dissident. He was a man whose work greatly contributed to the downfall of the Soviet Union. At one point, he commented about the reason for why all those things had transpired. And this is what he said. Solzhenitsyn said, If I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people. He says, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. So let's remember then, and let's faithfully teach that next generation. God wants us and he wants us back from whatever sinful mess we're in. He wants our fidelity. And remember we can be faithful to him because he's a good father. And he's faithful to us. Amen? Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessings in our lives. Thank you for the freedom to come here to gather openly, to speak openly, to worship you openly. Thank you for that blessing. and I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. Thank you for Christ and the blessings that we have because of Christ. Thank you that we can look forward to eternity, to our real hope. That's not in this world, and I thank you for this message in Judges, and the reminder that it is. Pray that we'd be encouraged by it. Pray that we'd be motivated by it, and ask that you bless our kids to give us the wisdom to teach them. Help us to build a culture in our homes of faithfulness, of generational faithfulness to you. I pray that this week we move ahead, I pray that you would just equip us as a group to tackle the tasks that you set before us and honor you with the things that we say and do. We ask all these things. In Christ's name, amen.